Patrick. Great to be here. Thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast. Um, very excited to have you on. This is a podcast I know is going to resonate with everyone. And you can't say that about every podcast. For me, this is really like, how can talk to you about how we can get positive, more positive shit done in our lives. So our worlds are tremendously busy, constantly stimulated, constant noise and demands. And I certainly feel a lot of the time like I'm a bit of a busy fool, um, you know, lacking focus, lacking attention, a lot to be done, but how much progress am I really making? And I, I know it's probably, they're probably feelings a lot of people can identify with. Your work um, is about helping business leaders, entrepreneurs, just ambitious people in general around their cognitive performance, so their focus and attention. But I know you look at things more holistically and before you try train their train their minds and how to focus, um, from what I understand, really the first step for you is talking to people to identify what their purpose or their value is. Could you kind of talk to that first step of the process and how you work with people to identify what their value is and why is that an important place to start? Yeah. So like there's um, there's the hook which we often put out there or that gets us in the door, which is that we'll make you more productive. Uh, you'll do things faster. Um, you'll accomplish more in less time. These are all the things that people want to hear and these are the things which we can help them with. But uh, we're not going to get them there just with like, uh, here's five steps or here's four techniques or here's four tricks or seven steps. It's, it's, it needs more than that. So focus is the thing. Focus is the thing which I'm interested in. I'm interested in it because it's something that we need. It's something that we do. We, we call on all the time, but it's never taught to us. We never actually get a, we never get to explore and understand what is focus or why am I unable to focus uh, we often just go at it with a sense of great judgment of ourselves. I need to do this, but somehow I keep avoiding it or being pulled away from it. And something is wrong with me. I need to be more driven. I need to be more motivated. I need to wake up earlier. I need to sleep less, whatever. There's many different ways that people interpret that and go with it. So over years of doing this, I've come to recognize that it has to start with becoming aware of yourself. So a big shift was recognizing that I am not one person, but I am many. There's many people who show up here. There's many people that show up in different environments when I feel different ways. Uh, if I'm emotional, if I am underslept, if I am overtraveled, if I am overwhelmed, I will act very differently under all of those different conditions. And the more aware that I can become of how I act in those different environments, the more agency or control I have over myself across all. But if I just have this sense of who I want to be and I keep denying the reality of how I show up every day, I'll keep falling in the same traps over and over and over again. So at the start of our work, before we even make any changes, we spend a lot of time with people just watching themselves. That's all they have to do. And they try and release any judgment. And I'm not talking about that doing that from like a meditative posture or something. We give people little exercises. They have a, a list of emotions that we give them and they score them and they uh, start tracking uh, how often they show up in their life. So how often these negative emotions show up, how often these positive emotions, they get a little journal, they carry it with them. 
They just look for the patterns. I said I wasn't going to eat sugar, but yet when I went into the coffee shop, I ended up getting that triple chocolate cookie. What happened there? The story that I told myself before I ended up in the coffee shop was very different than the story I told myself at the counter. So let's look at that. There was a different part of you that showed up. Let's see who that was. Um, I act a certain way with my new friends, but then I act totally differently with my old friends. The things that we do together, the way that I am. I act very differently in my day-to-day job than I do when I'm on my side hustle and the side work that I'm doing. My drive, my motivation is very different. Let's see what's going on there. And the more that we can look at these patterns within ourselves, sometimes I don't even have to do anything then. All the answers are underneath your nose. they, They were there all the time. It's just we weren't looking at ourselves clearly enough. So that's the start. We start there by having people reflect on themselves, but not in the sense of like, an hour of journaling and that's it. No, we, we do it for like two or three weeks, just constant little bitty looking at yourself. And, and over time, you start to recognize that there's there's many different characters in this body and they show up in many different ways. And does it take a lot of digging after you've done that self-reflective analysis of yourself? Do you find with the people you work with, it takes a lot of digging to actually get to that to identify what you do value because no doubt all these different roles that we're playing all the time, that's just, that's, that's what we all do. Um, how deep do you have to go with these people to, to get to that position where they, under the, the light, they see the light and they actually say, that's what I value in my life. Is, is it something you can get to quite quickly? It kind of depends on what they want. Okay. I think, I think the, 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 the draw that takes you there is, is, is how much you want something, either how drawn you are to the thing you want or how disgusted you are with the way you're showing up. Mm. You know, either way can kind of drive you there. I am just so sick of the patterns. Like I had that a lot. I had that back when I was starting the first business that I did. Suddenly I became very aware of how at the time I was living in New York and with who I was hanging out with and the way I was living, I went out on a Friday night and a Saturday night and the bars in New York don't close until 4am. So, and sometimes I would end up in Brooklyn until seven or eight in the morning. And if that was, that was how my Fridays and Saturdays were in the evenings, Sunday was a dead day. Monday was often terrible. Tuesday, I might start to get my energy back. Wednesday, I was feeling good. Thursday was all right. And then Friday, we would be right back into the swing of things again. And I hated this cycle of what I was doing. I really did. But the more I judged myself, the more I found myself constantly back into it. And then I would not drink for a week, but then I would feel good enough that I could treat myself going back and drinking on a Friday. And you can see how this perpetual pattern comes and comes. And for me, I was just, there was a dual force where I couldn't stand how much of my energy and my time I was wasting by living this way. So I wanted to... I I was more driven by the disgust that I had of myself and how I was wasting so much of my life than I was drawn towards this vision or view of myself that I wanted because that wasn't even that clear. So I think it's important. We try and probe people to explore that. Like, is it that you just want to leave that part of yourself behind and emerge into something better? Or is there a goal, a craft, a business, something that you want to pursue? Because we must have something which is driving us. We're moving away from something or moving towards something. And for most people, is it moving towards something or moving away from something? Or is it very, it can it be blended? Yeah. Yeah. And like, let's not get too abstract. I want to make this crystal clear with yeah. people. So yeah. most of our work has been in the corporate sector with people. And we just have them go through a process, their internal game of looking at themselves. And for a lot of people, they're feeling like they're underslept. Uh, they, they want more sleep. Mm. 
or they want to lose some weight or they want to feel less stressed and be more present with their family. So these are things, these are these right. are motivating factors. So for many of them, they, they just even understanding about how important sleep is, getting a bit of more education on that and how important that is to their their cognitive performance, their well-being, their energy, that changes things. Just having that awareness, understanding things deeply can make a change in what they do. So we don't have to go at such a mega scale. It can just start off there. And suddenly, if you start sleeping a bit more and feeling a bit better, you're like, wow, I can actually be so much more just from allowing myself to get an extra hour of sleep per night. And, and that, starts, that starts creating some momentum, which is hence why the program that we've run with a lot of these companies is called the Momentum Mind, because... The origins, we don't have to get into this too much, but maybe it's interesting to provide it with context. I was teaching speed reading and memorization workshops around the US and I got into that because I took a speed reading course and I was blown away by it about how much of a shift that created in me. Um, Just what is speed mm. reading? And So when I first moved to New York, I was working for a guy and we had a bizarre working setup together where in the morning at 7am we'd go into his office and I was kind of playing the role of his assistant. We, I, we would both read his emails together at the same time and then he would dictate what he wanted me to respond with and I would type it. And that was the first hour or 90 minutes of the morning. But when it was a long email, he could always read it faster than I could. And I would try and read faster at home to try and get better at it, but I would always end up missing something. So one day I said to him, how are you doing this? How are you always reading faster and not missing anything? And he said, 20 years ago when I came here, I took a speed reading course. I said, a speed reading course, what's that? He said, it's learning how to read faster. And in my head, I had thought up to that point, like your ability to read is your ability to read. You're a good reader, you're a bad reader, you like reading, you don't like reading. And it took me a long time. It took me four years. And then eventually I pulled the trigger and went for this speed reading course in the Upper West Side. And what I realized is that for most of us, we learn how to read when we're three or four and we never learn again, but the complexity of the material grows and the needs that we have and how we process information grows. So what we end up with is a single gear. So it's like a fixie, a fixie bike that you cycle with. It's fine on one terrain, but as soon as you start meeting hills or different terrains, it's not a great bike to have. What you want is you want different gears. So that speed reading course, yes, it allows you to read faster, but it also helped me to understand how to read more deeply, how to read difficult things, which were too hard for me to read. So it kind of gave me many, many gears that I could use. I could skim through something very quickly or I could read something that was more difficult. And that led me to teaching that around the US. And that's what allowed me to see that everywhere I went, there were fractured minds. Everybody's attention was very fractured and fragmented from high school kids to business executives and investment banks and hedge funds. And uh, I was feeling the same myself. So I wanted to figure out if I could figure this out with reading and memory, there must be something there with focus too which kind of led me on this path. And the beginning, like you said at the beginning of this conversation was, it has to begin with your values. You have to get clear on what you want because that allows you to identify what you, won't, what you don't want and what you won't allow into your life anymore. How do you define focus? It's a good question. I think it's different in the, in the, in the different, in different scenarios. Ultimately, the way that I think about it and feel about it is that there's something which I want to do and I'm able to organize myself to do it. In simple terms, that's how I think about it. I want to chat with you and I want to be here and I want to be involved in this conversation. I need to make a change in myself so that I'm here. Mm -hmm. I need to write and respond to this email, which has a problem in it. I want to shift my mind to think about that problem, get it solved and move on to the next thing that I want to do. 
And I personally felt, and I saw it in a lot of other people, that they knew what they wanted, but they couldn't organize themselves to do it. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. To, to achieve that state of focus and probably consistent focus, does that have to be, do you have to be working on something that you value to, to be able to do it consistently over time? Or from the, from the coaching that you can do, can you train someone to, to have this focus, even working on stuff that's not what you've identified that they value it? Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. So a really simple thing, like a really simple thing that, that was a huge shift for me is I thought that I, so when I was running my own business at the beginning, I thought focus was a chance encounter. It was like a game of Russian roulette. Some days I was focused, some days I wasn't. And it depended on how I felt inside. So I'd arrive to the office and I'd just be like, oh God, I can't focus today. And then some days it was like, oh, wow, mm. it's all flowing through. Can you relate to that feeling? Totally. Yeah, and you, you just surrender to that minute you sit at the desk, yeah, today not is not the day. And then you just kind of accept it almost. Yeah. Or you start thinking, oh, what I need is I need a coffee yes. or I need a I need this or I need that or I just need to read this and then I'm going to feel good. I feel it's more than just one day versus the next. It's like these peaks and troughs, you know, within a day. Yes. Um, that's the frustrating piece. But maybe peaks and troughs are good. I don't know. They're very natural. And, and the thing, so it took me a long time to recognize this, but what I came to realize, and this extrapolates far beyond focus, is that your, how you feel dictates how you act. So, and this relates to many things and many patterns of our behavior. And we often don't, are not that clear on how we feel. So I'm just going to posit this as an example. When I left Ireland when I was 21, it's saying that frustrated me was that everybody said that they were embarrassed. So, oh my God, that's so embarrassing. I wouldn't do that. That's embarrassing. This happened. I'm so embarrassed. And it used to frustrate me because I would think, but it's not really that embarrassing. But yeah, you're saying it all the time. And it, it creates this shyness. It creates this um, lack of wanting to actually step out or to be seen or to really have confidence. And I think that can breed into Irish culture in the way that we totally. are. This embarrassment. And when I come to Dublin, I hear the word mortified. It goes even more extreme. Oh my God, I'm so <laughs> mortified, you know? It's like it's taken to a whole other level. <laughs> then when I went to the States at 21, it switched from embarrassed to anxious. Everybody was anxious. This place makes me anxious. This person gives me anxiety. That show gives me anxiety. And really, there's a whole nuance of feelings that are going on inside the body there. But we just blanket it with the simple term, embarrassed or anxious. And we don't inquire for ourselves into what that truly feels like. And then we become hostage to that feeling. So as soon as we label it like I'm anxious or I'm embarrassed, you're, yeah, you're held hostage to it. You don't actually have that much awareness of how you feel. You've just put a label on it. And therefore, that dictates the, the response that comes from it. So if we frame that as an example, we can look at focus and recognize that that very feeling that arises is just something to be explored. Because any time we really have to attend to something, be it to go for a long run, to go for a heavy workout, to go for a long hike, to do a task, a mental cognitive task, you are going to feel this friction, especially if it's anything at all that requires any thought. It's, it's created called limbic friction. So you're going to feel this agitation. It's the same thing that you feel at a muscular level at the beginning of a run or maybe at a certain point of a run where you feel this, 
window where it feels very difficult. I know you do quite a lot of running, Fergus. I'm sure you can relate to this yeah, feeling, exactly. right? Yeah. So w- once you can associate with that feeling, like this is going to come, I anticipate that this will come. You can just allow it to be there and you develop a different relationship with it. And that's a huge thing of what people need because when they feel that frustration or that agitation at the beginning of the day, what they default to is distracting themselves. So I'm trying to start this task that I need to do and I feel this agitation. So I'm going to check Instagram because I can't handle the agitation. So I'm going to get a coffee. And that what that does is that weakens us to dealing with that internal friction. But if we can start to say, I'm on the, I'm on the pathway, I'm, I'm arriving, suddenly it's completely different. It's, it's just about reframing your relationship with that feeling inside. And you can apply that to everything. You can apply that to cravings with food. Well, I'm, I, I was at the cinema last night. I had some chocolate. So at some point today, I'm definitely going to crave some chocolate because mm-hmm. I had it yesterday and I had it and it was came part in. So I just need to recognize when that craving shows up today, I don't really need it and I don't really want it. I just need to let this pass for five or 10 minutes. And, and it's, it's how we can observe how we feel inside that can change things. And that's a crucial part, I think, there for focus. Mm. You mentioned an example there that I can just totally relate to and it's grabbing the phone. Um, and on your website, it mentions... Time spent focused on a single task has gone from 120 seconds in 2004 to 44 seconds today. Mm. Is this purely tech driven? Is it purely tech driven? It's definitely, it's definitely changing the makeup of our brains. Like uh, Nicholas Carr wrote about this in The Shallows, how he felt that the internet and the access to instant information and the convenience of everything was was uh, making us far more impulsive and was eroding our ability to sit with things. And I had a conversation, I was sitting beside a physicist on the way back from, uh, from Boston to Charlotte on a flight. And she told me, she actually only brought in a smartphone into her life five years ago, but she said since she's brought it in, she can't sit with problems like she used to. She used to enjoy going through problems for three, four hours because she can't use the internet. The internet is no use to her. It's not going to solve the problem. She has to use her, her cognitive capacity to think through them. And now she said after 45 minutes, she finds it difficult. She can really kind of sustain it for 45 minutes and then it, it starts to dwindle. And that's because, you know, uh, she's a professor as well. So there's, a, you know, she's caught in that whole administrative loop of mm. emails and everything that comes with it. So for sure, which is why a big thing that I encourage is to recognize that it's the limits that you place in yourself today that will set you free. The things that we're struggling with are not what our parents and our grandparents struggled with. They were fighting through challenges of scarcity where they didn't have enough access to things and they were fighting to get more comfort. I was in the LinkedIn offices today. What an incredibly comfortable place. Like it's too comfortable. There's too much stuff. You're too well taken care of in many ways. There's not enough agitation and friction there in the environment. And that's the same for us that we're, our sufferings today are sufferings of abundance. We're trying to learn how to put up boundaries around all of the things which are coming in on top of us. And this is calling on a whole new frame of how we navigate the world. So that's why it's, it's focusing on the limits today, and which, which comes back to establish those limits. You have to understand what it is you want. Because that allows you to know what you say no to because of what you're choosing to say yes to. So you can kind of start to see how these things are are woven in together. So do you, do you think we're becoming more stupid or less engaged as humans? 
well, we're definitely not less engaged. We're we're overly engaged. Um, Are we overly engaged in many things, but not like properly things? engaged in anything? So I, it's not my place necessarily to say that, but what I what I can say from conversations I've had is there are traps out there mm. and we're falling for the traps hook, line and sinker. So for example, YouTube shorts. Uh, people have told me that they like YouTube shorts because they, it allows them to learn a lot more stuff in faster ways. Uh, people have told me that they won't read anymore because they can sign up to uh, Blinkist, which gives them digests of six-page digests from books we have, are opting less and less to read and to listen and to uh, listen to podcasts and watch videos. And, and the thing about all of that is it, it doesn't demand your participation. It, you are very much allowed to be a passive, passive occupant in it. So, for example, somebody can be listening to this podcast and they can actually zone out for 10 minutes yeah. and they won't even be that aware that they zoned out for 10 minutes. Mm. If you read a book or if you're writing something or if you are like in a learning process face to face, you're called out very quickly because your participation is demanded. So if you have to read something, you very quickly realize, well, well I wasn't involved in that last page or those last two pages at all. I, I'm missing a thread in what the conversation is. Now I have to go back. So those acts of engagement demand your participation and that allows you to do deeper learning. Whereas today, what we get is acts of learning that have very little participation and it's very shallow. Mm -hmm. So it means that we're allowed to talk about things at a very surface level, but we can't really go into anything with great depth. So we're aware of many things, but we don't really know that much that deeply. And I'm speaking in very general terms. So mm -hmm. this isn't the case for everybody. There are some people who aren't that way. But it's just that if we rely on the convenience and the efficiency and the ease of everything given to us, it does limit our capacity to think for ourselves and to synthesize between different things that we learn because we're not participating. Are you hopeful for the future in terms of our relationship with technology and are we going to actually lose our capacity to think completely and just hand hand that over? I don't know. I, I uh, You know, there was a time in me where I thought I'd love to share all this with the world and the work that I'm doing. And I wonder if that really is the role that I'm going to play. I'm not so sure. Personally, I'm so curious in everything I'm learning about myself. And that's actually where I'm going with all of this. So I, 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 when I hear people discussing, you know, the correct prompts for chat GPT and how you have to learn this, and this is the most important thing. I'm thinking, sure, but like you've no idea the amazing stuff that's here inside this mind and this body that you can play with. And when you start realizing that there's so much to play with, like there's so many things that I am seeing that I am limited in and so many elements of, because the thing, the thing that, that changed when I learned that, that, when I did that speed reading course is that I realized that my intelligence is so malleable. So I, I had looked at things, I had bracketed things off of what I could do and couldn't do up to that point. And as soon as I took that course, I realized everything's up for grabs. It's just, if you can't learn it this way, you just need to find a different way to approach it. And that has made everything very interesting for me. So this is a, a selfish path. It's a selfish path of my own curiosity and my own learning, the things that I want to discover within and about myself. And then from that, there are some things which I share with people and some things that I go very deep in sharing with a certain group of people. So I'm on this as a, as a journey for myself before I even think about anybody else. 
and I have so much to learn. I still feel like I've only skimmed the surface of the things that I think are available to us inside. So that's that's more of my my focus at the yeah, moment. I like it. Um, for the busy fools, and I'm putting myself in that that bracket, who are working the long hours and are studying are struggling to get a lot done and don't have that focus. We've talked about where you start and that's really defining your value, what drives you. If we go dig a little bit deeper into daily practices um, and how, I, I know this differs person to person, but if you could give a slightly general view of where people would start, what improvements they could make to certain practices within their day or night. Um, yeah, where do you go after you've defined what they want? Yeah, and I'm going to tell this through a story of a guy who was in one of our programs. And what he said really, really impacted me. Uh, it was a guy called Frank, and he was the CIO at a, at a, at a large company. And he, we got on a call together and he was, he was lamenting the man that he is today compared to the man that he used to be. So 10 years ago, he had like learned a new coding language. He had, uh, he was felt like he was doing very well in his career. He had some hobbies. He traveled. He felt like he just was living well in his life. And today, this was last year. So things had shifted in the way that work was being conducted. And he wanted to learn a new coding language, but couldn't seem to do it. He had books that he wasn't getting to read. That was just the stack was growing and his day was getting longer, but he felt like his work was, the quality of his work was getting less and less. And he said something to me, which made a big shift in my understanding of all of this, where he said, I have all of the intention, but no attention. So I think for a lot of us, we think that we need more drive and willpower, but I, I really don't think that that's it because I see so many people in so many places who are so driven but it's just that they find that they are their own greatest obstacle. And that's where this is. And that's why beginning with curiosity before judgment is very important because there's many patterns that you'll, if you can see them, things will change. So just to frame that, like with that, that you don't need to think that you need a huge amount more willpower. You probably have quite a bit. It's just to become, it's just to become more aware of the, the patterns that are driving your life. So the, the, most important place to start, I think, is your evening, because for the vast majority of people who we've seen, they are underslept. And that leads to when you're underslept and you wake up, you are in that state of survival. So you're trying to sleep for a little bit longer if you can. Also, if you sleep with your phone in your room, this is, has a huge driver. This is one of the first steps that we encourage people to do is to buy an alarm clock. I just said this to you yesterday. Yeah. Well, obviously I was primed because I knew we were coming <laughs> on this podcast. I walked upstairs and I was like, Fergus, you know what? Let's leave our phones outside the room tonight. And you were like, what? How will we wake up? <laughs> <laughs> and okay. That, and that's it because we never chose for our phone to become our alarm clock. We just did it because it was convenient. The phone, off, it's, it's, it's so many things collapsed into one. So getting the alarm clock in means that the phone can go out and... That, that's a big step. And, and it sounds so much easier said than done because there's so many people that we've suggested this to who realize that they have massive anxiety. That's the word that they've used in describing it when their phone is not with them. So that's something to explore there because for many people, the phone has become the pacifier, pacifying you to sleep at night and the stimulant, the thing that jerks you up in the morning. And if that becomes the pacifier and the stimulant, you become very disengaged from like how you drive your energy and your mental state in your life, you actually end up becoming more and more dependent on the phone 
dictate how you feel. So if you can do that, that suddenly will emerge a lot of space. So that's a huge step if you're not doing that, to do that consistently. So that means 30, 40, 60 minutes before bed, you try and put it in a drawer or a locker, somewhere obscure in a way. And then now what are you going to do with that space? That's something you have to observe. Like, am I going to stretch? Am I going to read? Am I going to listen to a podcast? Am I going to play some music? What's there for me? There's so many things. But try not to fill it with Netflix. Try not to go from one screen to another. Um, and then in the morning, can you know, it's, it's worth playing with how long can I delay looking at my phone? Mm. Can I give it the first 20 minutes? And what am I going to do in those 20 minutes? Then do I feel like this immediate need to check my phone? Okay, so can I stretch it a little bit further? Can I introduce something else? And all of that just starts to create less and less of this dependence and this reliance on your phone dictating your own internal state. So the evening is the place to begin. And, um, you know, there's many different tips out there of things to do to improve your rest. So depending on what your lifestyle is, I, I encourage you to explore that. But treat getting more sleep as the most important thing, because th that really sets you up to be less in that state of survival the next day. And then in the morning, how long can you stretch the morning before you pick up your phone? Can you try and do some exercise? Can you try and do some movement? Can you get outside? Can you start going to the gym without your AirPods? Can you start going to the gym without listening to music? Can you try and eat without looking at your phone? All of these are habits that you never chose to bring into your life. You just did it because you didn't want to deal with the agitation and the discomfort of feeling what you're actually feeling. So this is what we're trying to encourage is try and live with yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. That's that's hard. That's hard. <laughs> yeah. That's hard. And I'm not saying to go to like a silent retreat. I'm just saying in these really small acts, yeah. these aren't big acts. They're just very small. But those daily acts... All they do is that they just start providing a little bit more space. It's like they just open up this space in your day. And in that space, that's where you start to get clarity. You start to actually think through things. Because for most of us, when we are confused, we turn to a podcast. We turn to the internet to give us answers. But actually, all the answers that we need are there. We just haven't provided the space for them to emerge. Hmm. I, uh, As you're talking about all those little agitations, I see myself in every single one of them. And I feel it. Mm. Like I know exactly what that feeling feels like. Um, so, so it'll really all, that's just reducing, it's given us the space, as I say, and reducing our dependence on these external stimuli, I suppose. And then when we show up at work and we're at the desk, is it the, is the thought process that the more the more we can reduce our dependency on these stimuli that will just feed into the rest of our day that we don't need to grab that phone and look at something while we're in the middle of an email and we're we'll just we'll just build up our it's nearly like our sp space fitness for, for example you know you just get used to actually uh, living with yourself and you can kind of carry that into your day y yeah it's 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 kind of like what the feeling is like when you feel healthy Okay. So, you know, what the feeling is like if you haven't drank for a while or if you hadn't had a takeaway for a while, if you hadn't had unhealthy food and then suddenly you go and you decide for some reason something happens and you go for a drink and then you eat very unhealthy the next day. Oftentimes the speed of what will bring you out of that is how comfortable you feel in the well-being of your body. Just that awareness of how good it feels to feel good will pull you out of it. So if you can start to taste what it feels like not to have um, a mind which is so fractured and fragmented in checking everything and you actually have some space with yourself, 
you then start to be able to start to feel inside what it's like when my mind is clear and what it's like when my mind is chaotic and all over the place. And you'll start trying to do more things in your life to create more clarity, which is why the practice in the evening is not just about doing that, but it's about experiencing what that feels like. And the agitation is not something to be to run away from. It's going to stay like the agitation will be there all the time. I know it's getting maybe into more like the tenets of Buddhism, but like life is suffering. The suffering will always be there. It's just, are you going to keep pushing it down the road? The, the, the cravings that we have for the sweets or the candies or whatever it is, is often to push away the discomfort that we feel in this moment. But we're only delaying it for five or 10 minutes. As soon as we've eaten it, the discomfort will re-arise again. So all of these things, that's just what they're doing. They're just pushing away the suffering that we're feeling inside. But it's going to stay there. We can just create a different relationship with it. Like for some of us, as we saw in COVID, cold water for people before COVID was this something that they screamed and shouted about and they touched their toes and they said, no, no, it's too cold. And now for people, they run into the water. They, they need it every day because it's making them feel so good. So how we balance that relationship with the agitation is what's really important. So that's kind of where it is that doing these things then will bring a different frame of mind into the way that you conduct yourself in work. And then if we look at it from work, but also from a social perspective, a key thing which I would speak on is the trap of availability, which is that we often think that the more accessible and available I can be, the better and more productive I will be. But it's often the opposite. It's often the opposite, that the more all of these all of these platforms that you're on, so if we look at it as your social profiles, your social media profiles. So if you're on TikTok and LinkedIn and WhatsApp and Telegram and Twitter and so many others, you have to check those not just once a day, but many times a day. And whenever a message comes in, there's a, there's a need for you to respond. And when you respond, the, another message will come in. So if we just look at that just as a system, that's just creating a constant feedback loop of things which you must check and things that you become emotionally invested in. And this is in the design. Nir Eyal wrote the book Hooked on how to make habit-forming products. And the fourth step, so the, the, the four steps are the trigger. So ideally what we want to begin with is an external trigger, which is like the notification. But the best way to make them really sticky is to create an internal trigger. So when I'm on my own, when I feel isolated, when I feel lonely, when I feel bored, that's when I go to Instagram. Suddenly now I have an association. So now once they've built that association, that gets you there all the time. That's what gets you showing up 60 times a day. Then I take an action. I scroll through. I look through my feed. I, um, I get a little reward. Somebody has liked the post or I've seen something new. I've learned something. Once again, all of these are little sticky things that give you this feeling like you're getting feedback from it. And then the final step is the investment. So now you're investing more of your own self into this platform, into this virtual persona you've created for yourself. I deleted all my social media apps and nothing changed in my body. Nothing changed my mind. I'm still the exact same person as I was. I just have more space in my life. They are not actually me. They are a virtual representation of me. But the more we invest in it, the less clarity we get on that. We think that they are me. And we think that these other people's lives are my life. And you are also caught in the past of your life. I'm just going to tell the story on this, okay? Because yeah. this brought to light of how I was, um, of not being on social media. So I was in Dublin a few months ago and I went to a CrossFit gym. And for whatever reason that morning, there was nobody else in there. It was just me and the trainer. And we were chatting for like five minutes or so. And then we figured out she was from Galway. And I said, oh, I'm from Galway as well. And she, um, yeah, she 
she said, oh, that's funny. Where are you from? I said, Oren Moore. She said, oh, I'm from Galway City. And yeah, then she was like, oh, I know a guy from Oren Moore. Actually, he's living in Barcelona. I was like, really? He's living in Barcelona. I was living in Barcelona at the time. So what's his name? So Paddy McAndrew. I said, I am Paddy McAndrew. <laughs> <laughs> and then I asked her what her name was and she told me and then it clicked who she was. But I had actually forgotten who she was because I don't have social media. I probably would have come across her profile many times over the mm. last 10 years, but I hadn't seen her since secondary school. So I had forgotten about her. And I actually looked at that afterwards and I thought that's quite healthy. Mm. Whereas for the vast majority of people, they are, are aware of their current friends and their past friends and their friends from their childhood. And they're invested in all of their lives. And this occupies so much mental space. And it doesn't need that. You could be so much more invested into the things you're involved in in your life today. Mm. So that trap of availability is that. And it's we have people go through an inventory of accessibility which is how many email accounts do you have how many subscriptions do you have how many newsletters do you have how many social platforms how many bank accounts credit cards can we reduce it can we reduce it can we bring it down because the more you narrow it the more space you have i'm selfishly going to ask you a question here um and if anyone is listening and is a social media manager or involved in social profiles that's like taking on two personas. So I obviously look after all the social for ethos. So I am Amy with all of these different touch points in my life, but I'm also ethos with all these different touch points. Like I keep saying to Fergus, like I'd really love to do a social media detox or take some time away, but then the business would suffer, which it can't. So it's like, you know, double the amount. Um, what would you advise I do? <laughs> Help. <laughs> yeah, it's a tough one. Whenever I've done less on social media, my business has always done much better. Right. You know, the, I've, I have personally found that because I'm, uh, I, I, yeah, it's difficult. Like, look, if it's your role, it's your role. So that's, that's the role you're playing and that's the road you've horse, that's the horse you've rode in on in, mm. in, in what you're aiming to do. But I would challenge people in your business thinking of how much you depend on social media. You can create that dependency and you can also create other opportunities in other areas. Yeah. I don't think it's nearly as important as it's made out to be. I think there's actually many ways to go about this path of running a business, but it's just that the default approach is that I must be on social media and I must be very present. Mm -hmm. But I also think you can build a foundation of a business. Some do so well with their social presence. You know, I have a business that's in a different space that I'm not necessarily consumer facing. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I would just challenge your assumptions, challenge your assumptions from your own personal perspective, from what ethos really needs, mm. from where your energy is being directed. And could it be going into other places? Uh, because ultimately what you want is you want to get the business to a place where you don't need to be doing that. And yeah. then somebody else is taking it. Totally. So could other things kickstart that? Mm -hmm. um, I have two questions on the concept of momentum. I know your, your program is the Momentum Mind program. Firstly, on a on a day-to-day -day basis, can you, in terms of how you structure the tasks of your day, should you put like, say, creative tasks first to build momentum in your, in your day? Um, and by doing those tasks, does it have a knock-on effect to being more focused at the tasks that are, are a little bit more admin? So one is the, this distinction of like a maker and a manager day. Can you, can you break them up in that way? That some days are maker days, which means that I'm not on calls. I'm not checking my inbox for a while. I'm not taking any noise from the world coming at me and I'm making what I need to make. And sometimes that could be a day. Sometimes that could be a morning. 
So what we've done with different uh, business owners is that Monday, Tuesday, they don't take any meetings, they don't take any calls, they try and get into the practice of not checking any emails until 11.30, 12, because that's the dedicated time to make and that's the dedicated time to go deep into things. Then the rest of the day or the rest of the week is a manager day. So it depends on what the layout of the business is. Mm. Some people, the vast majority of people thrive in creating that space in the morning. So if you can dedicate that time in the morning, that's better. Some people do better in the evening and you should already have a sense of that, I think, if you know when, you're, when your time to thrive is. It's almost easier for the people in the evening, actually, because they can kind of do the kind of the busy work, the communication work in the day, and then they can get into it in the evening. It's probably a little bit harder and requires more boundary setting for people who do their good work in the morning. But that's something that I would consider is rather than thinking about all days being created equal and all hours being created equal, could you just create... And at the beginning... The truth is, is that we have very little capacity to actually stay focused. So mm. it's worth just being honest with yourself and recognizing I'm going to go deep into this for 45 minutes and then I'm going to switch to another task for 45 minutes and set up two or three of those tasks on a Monday or a Tuesday morning. But I think that helps a lot. And it starts to train this state of mind that this is focus time. Because we also live in a world where you do have to multitask, but it just doesn't need to be the default state. So I'm not somebody who's saying that you're in like this hyper-focused state. I'm not somebody who says that we need it all the time. But what I want to help people is to access it when they need it. And that's something, that distinction of a maker and a manager day or time in the day has, has helped a lot of people. And, and secondly, when people become more focused and start to see results and get that positive feedback loop, how do people slip into their old habits or does real momentum build uh, over time and they just become just more focused individuals as a result? Or do you find that a lot of your clients can actually retreat to maybe focusing on things that they actually isn't within their value set? Yeah, for sure. Because a lot of them work in corporate settings. And they, although they have this want, the mm. corporate machine goes completely against everything we're talking about. So the machine sets them up with as many tools as they can to communicate as quickly as possible because they have salespeople coming into the IT team saying, get Slack because it'll allow you to send messages five times faster or whatever the metrics are on the efficiency of communication. So they get it and then they deploy it across the whole team. But then it's just another state of noise, which is more friction to actually do work. So it is easier if you run your own business to get into this groove. It's, it is a lot harder in the corporate setting. Like I'll acknowledge that 100%. Um, and one thing that I just want to come back to, there's another thing that I want to say on that, but just on the setup, uh, an app which helped me a lot was the Freedom app. Mm -hmm. So I would highly recommend people looking at that. I think the subscription is maybe 20 euro or 25 euro a year, but you can create block lists and you can schedule them. So for a long time, I had like, look, I love checking Sky Sports, seeing what's going on with Arsenal. When the transfer window comes up, I fall for it as much as anybody else in the day-to-day -day cycles of what's going on. But on the Freedom app, I have it set up that between like five and six in the evening or five and seven, I can actually have a look at Sky Sports. So it's not blocked completely. It's just there at a certain time. Um, and then if I need to do work for a while, I can turn off the internet completely on my device or I can have a load of apps or websites blocklisted so I can't check them. And that helped me a lot. That helped me a lot in noticing that Still, even when I set this up and I was trying to do work that was really difficult, I would keep getting drawn into other websites because I, I couldn't deal with the frustration of, you know, when you, I, I know that I need to do this, but I don't know what the next step is. It's so, it's so easy just to step out. 
But having freedom then gave me the way to either stay sitting there or to like leave the computer and just take a little walk and come back. And suddenly it kind of rewired my habits so that the habit was not to just pick up my phone all the time. So that, sorry, that's something I just wanted to say on that with freedom. And in sustaining this, the big part is that you must allow your identity to evolve. So if you, if your sense of yourself is not growing with this, you'll keep coming back to your, the old status quo of who you are. So if you can go through these practices and you can say, Fergus, well, you're, I'm a different man. Like this is, or even at some stages, you know, you can create two different personas. I, I did that at different stages where there was like, I think there was Patrick and Paul. I don't know why I picked Paul, but Paul was kind of that character that I knew was very impulsive. And um, I would recognize him. And I would also notice when I was slipping more back into that. And then there was Patrick, who was maybe more of the way that I wanted to live for what I wanted to do. And I would recognize that sometimes I was slipping into those patterns of Paul. And I'd see that and then I'd try and come back to where I was with Patrick. And that sense of who Patrick is should kind of continuously be evolving because he's needed to be, act differently in different ways. But the identity part is, is crucial here, that you're seeing that those ways that you're living are reinforcing who you are or who you are becoming. Mm-hmm. So if we, if we explore like practical hands-on tools and to be fair, like you've gone through a few already, um, does nutrition play a role in this process as a tool because we we talk about the apps and I think with focus and stuff everyone always thinks about phones technology all that sort of stuff but the fundamentals of, of living is food how, do, how how might that come into the process yeah it's a big part actually so in the momentum mind program we encourage people to practice time restricted eating which is putting a, a certain window on their eating time because in the surveys that we did we found that for a lot of people, they were eating over 16 hours of the day. And that has a huge, even if they're getting eight hours of sleep, it still means that their, their internal organs are not getting that downtime, that rest, that recovery process. So they're waking up the next day a bit more inflamed, which is over if that's compounding, that has a big consequence. And we've seen that for people who've done it, who had those long eating windows, just reducing their eating window to 12 hours or 10 hours or eight hours, whichever they choose to go for, just constricting it a bit. doesn't have to be like, and it's not necessarily intermittent fasting per se either. It's, it's more about just making sure that it's a tighter window and you're leaving two and a half to three hours of your last bite before you go to bed. That is the, that's the big one for me mm-hmm. that I've identified out of anything I've tried is, and I always say to you, Amy's, yeah. I need to have my dinner like, before six o'clock. I know that's obviously not achievable to a lot of people. He's very demanding about his dinner when we get home from work. (laughs) I make my own dinner, excuse (laughs) you. Um, But yeah, that's the one thing, like I've tried lots of different, uh, sleep is the big one for me because I'm I'm an okay sleeper, but uh, I've noticed if I have like my last meal and I'm giving it, I probably need like three, three and a half hours at least the sleep just goes through the roof, like much better. And then obviously that has your knock-on effect for your cognitive performance the next day. It, it just makes, it just makes sense inherently that you're like, the, you're not digesting all this food. Just That's what I wonder, you who are living in Barcelona, what are the Spanish at? Yeah, I don't know. I, I could never, they got it completely wrong? I could never get in line with what they were doing. Mm. Their, their day started a lot later. Yeah. I mean, there's many things they that they do. They seem chill though as well. And Very chill, yeah. yeah. 
you see them drinking, you see the construction workers drinking a beer at 10, 10 30 in the morning as well on their breaks. There's stress many levels that they do. might be a bit lower with them, to be fair. <laughs> Possibly. Yeah, but I could never understand the late food and then the trying to sleep. Oh, I could never get into it. And, and just like you said, if I eat late, I feel dreadful the next day. Dreadful is a bit of an extreme word to say yeah. on that. I, f- I feel different. I feel this heaviness. Um, yeah, and the, there's something that's different there. So we've seen that that's helped people a lot. And that's before you even look at what you're eating. That's just when you're eating. Um, that that seems to make a big difference. The whole food thing, I mean, it's it's a... It's a treasure trove of information. I've gone down many different paths and I've tried many different things. And interestingly, some things have served me very well at some times and then they haven't served me well and other things I've had to. So that's one thing that I've seen that has worked time and time again. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, I just think it's I- interesting to play with stuff. You know, I was, I was eating a very low carb diet for a long time. Then I started bringing in a lot more fruit and some sugars, but not processed sugars into my diet. I found that that was helping me a lot with mm. my energy. So, yeah, I'm kind of always exploring and experimenting with things. Uh, thankfully, my energy feels very good at the moment. But so. I think the time-restricted eating thing, if, if it comes to diet, I think that is that is a big, big help. And, and really try trying to reduce your caffeine intake. You know, caffeine isn't a terrible thing, but... If you're exceeding two cups of coffee a day, I just think it it, it really frazzles your mind. Yeah. It's 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 it, it creates this intensity in your body, but it doesn't create this sharpness in your mind. It it, it creates this kind of pinball like mentality in your mind where you need to keep moving because once again you can't sit with how agitated and wound up your body feels inside, and that comes back to the feeling inside drives the action. So if we are more agitated frenzied in our body, it creates obviously a more frenzied state of behavior and actions in our day. So I also think it's interesting to observe this kind of sustained energy. You know, how can we create that more in our in our day? Your your practice seems like something that would be so complementary to just the nutrition world in general. I mean, if we're thinking about like CEOs or high flyers who are very on demand, traveling all over the world and they're in airports all the time or in hotels, like obviously their choices become a lot more limited. Um, and it just seems like such an interconnected world as your type of work with nutrition. Like, do, do many of your clients consider that or is that part of your work? It's not really, because I, I have so many more questions than I have answers on that stuff. Okay. So I don't feel like I can even delve into it. I have many more questions in my own body of things that I have to explore for myself. But, but it's, it's really important. I still encourage people to go and explore and to play with things. And also, I think it's interesting to question our, our relationship with health, in a sense. I, I read a book recently called The Beautiful Practice. It was a really, really, really good book. It really kind of probed me in thinking differently about things. And in it, he, he explores health. And he asked that question of health that many of us view health as a state of being. Uh, so I am, so it, 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 it's then based on certain barometers of I have more energy today than I did yesterday, or I have enough energy to get this thing done. Um, a lot of it just comes down to that, that kind of that feeling that I can get things done. 
But he was kind of questioning, can we look at health as our whole relationship with our life, as, as what we're bringing into every element of ourselves in all moments? And, and it takes it as a more experiential sense that your health is your broad experience of life, of how involved and interconnected you feel within how much you are experiencing of your life. And it, it just questioned it for me because I realized, ah, okay, my sense of health actually was very much rooted around being productive. It was like, I need to be healthy so that I can get these things done. So mm -hmm. therefore I need to sustain a certain state of being. But it wasn't, it had me question things and it had me question certain things that I'm pursuing as well. Um, so that's just something to explore too, is, is, is your relationship with health a very binary thing that I am either healthy or unhealthy in this very moment? Or can I look at it from, yeah, more angles and perspectives? Mm -hmm. um, something I'm curious about is, with your clients, how do you define success? It's a great question, Amy. It's a great question. It's um, it's been a challenge for us. And it's probably something that I need to explore how... So there's kind of two ways to do it. You could approach this from a, a very kind of strategic framework of a business, which says... We take you from here to here. And these are all the results. And it's almost like a weight loss journey. You know, like they started off here and now they did this. And this is how much success you're going to make. But the truth is, the thing that I love about it is everybody comes out with something different. And that's ultimately what I want is I want you to come out with what most, what's most necessary for you. Because everybody's at a different stage in their own internal development or their own internal exploration with themselves. So for some people when we did work with them during COVID, they had slipped into a habit of drinking six nights a week, having two or three drinks every night. And the program shifted that and they either stopped drinking or had one night, one night of drinking on a Saturday. And that was a huge change. And it was something that they really wanted in themselves, but they couldn't do it. And they kept falling back into that habit. And then they created different ways of winding down because they used it as a way of winding down in the evening. And then they found other ways to, other practices that we gave them for rest. One guy lost 35 pounds over the course of a six-week program. I never expected it to be a weight loss thing, but he was taking all of these brain breaks throughout the day. And he would, in between calls, he would go out and walk around the block. His son was with him sometimes, so he would go and play with his son. And his whole day before that was extremely sedentary. And his break was moving from the screen to his phone. And he was just doing that dance back and forth. And then he decided not to do that anymore. And he, he just, yeah, went out and took breaks. Some people have terrible sleep and they find that their sleep is much improved. Some people have told us that their business has grown immensely and they removed from being the bottleneck of their business because they had more clarity and more focus and they were doing much more by actually doing less. So it's a challenge because I could try and create a very like, you know, here to here, mm. but I also, I'm enjoying exploring all the different ways that it changes mm. people. So I'll probably keep on that path for a while. Nice. I am sold. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> um, do you practice what you preach with your routine? Yeah. Yeah. And I'll tell you, I didn't so much. I, I did at the beginning, but it was way more heady. So in 2021, I think it was the start of that year, I felt in, I felt so I just felt like something was off. I felt as if I was like the mechanic who knew how the car worked, but didn't know how to drive a car. Because I had read all these books on, from different neuroscientists. I connected to a lot of neuroscientists. I had been reading about 
the sociological elements which are driving these changes in us today. And I could tell you about all these biases. and But I, I still had no grasp of my internal state. I was doing it with a lot more force. I was doing it with a lot more kind of, yeah, a much more confrontational approach with myself, I'd say. I was forcing myself into what I was trying to be. And uh, yeah, I've come into many different practices now, which are offer a much different perspective. Moshe Feldenkrais is somebody who's inspired me a lot um, with his awareness movement practices. I've been doing some training with Ido Portal. That's There's a deep practice there. So a lot of movement has come into my life. Um, I've been trying to explore different types of meditation practices. And all of that has just, it's ultimately changed me as a person. So um, yeah, I, I, I practice what I preach, but at the same time, there's aspirations there. You know, I'm on this journey with the people that I'm working through. I have, I have not even seen the top of the mountain, let alone standing there. So I'm just trying to keep traveling on the journey of things that ultimately I keep moving towards the weaknesses in myself. That's all I'm looking for. I'm looking at the weaknesses and not because I want to fight with them, but I just want to explore them. Um, dance is a great weakness at the moment. Coordination is a great weakness at the moment. And uh, that's, that's kind of the stuff that I'm exploring in, in what that does to my brain and how it feels. And it feels awkward. It feels uncomfortable. Um, slow breathing. Slow breathing is a thing. You know, I was trying the kind of the Wim Hof practice and mm. these more intense breathing practices and they're great. They give you an immense high and euphoric state. But the slow breathing are uh, trying to reduce to two or one breath a minute. Uh, it's very different. Um, it's, yeah, it's it's different. So I'm, I'm, I'm trying to explore different things. So it's changing all the time, the practice. Nice. You... You have an insatiable appetite, I think, to discover yourself and to really get to know yourself. And does that sometimes come at odds with the work you do? Because like a lot of the times, we're, the more you get to know yourself and the more you get to know what you want, um, does that sometimes maybe contradict uh, or yeah, come at odds with the work you're doing? And how do you balance that? Because obviously we need to work, we need to earn some money, we need to put bread on the table. Um, is, that, yeah. is that a challenge you have? Yeah. Well, the challenge actually that I've had more than anything is that sometimes I'm over eager to share what I am doing into the programs that we have. Okay. So I've had to create a distance between my experience and the experience that I'm trying to help other people with. Okay. Because sometimes I don't, I haven't figured enough out yet. I haven't done, I haven't gone far enough. I think just like we were talking about like the shallow learning of a YouTube short video, you think you've learned something, but as soon as somebody questions you about it deeply, you realize, oh, I just watched a two-minute video. How am I going to tell you about things in any depth? And sometimes I've fallen for the trap of trying to teach things, which I really only knew at a very shallow level. You know, just because I had an experience with it doesn't mean that I'm ready to teach it. So that's probably more of the sense of what I've, how I've fallen for mistakes. But I've also set up my work to orient around this. Yeah, I... I didn't in the past. I, I was a, I had an audio marketing business before I did this, and I was a busy fool. Okay. Um, and I think I've I found ways to grow a business, but also link it in with my life in a way that works. Um, and I'll, I'll try and keep it that way. Super. There's one question that we always ask um, our guests, and it's around this idea of the patient paradox, the name for the podcast. Um, and the question that we're trying to answer in a lot of our conversations with people like yourself, it's, 
in a world where medicine is getting more advanced, why are people getting more sick? Mm. Be great to get your view on that. I think uh, I think things are very siloed. Uh, there's a book by, I think his name is Emmanuel Wallerstein, called World Systems Analysis. And it's a very interesting how he talks about the more medieval form of universities where there was four streams of learning. I'm not going to get all of them. It was, I think it was theology. It was medicine. It was... Mm, there was two others which are failing to come to mind. But all, you, you, within each of these four, you had uh, many things came into it. So which is why you had physicists and chemists, which were also very interested in poetry and were interested in philosophy. Philosophy was another stream within it. And they were, they were constantly pulling from many different areas and it was all infusing into what they learned, the, the work that they did. Um, da Vinci-esque kind of characters where everything was open to be explored. And then when we shifted them to the modern sense, it just created this, this very narrow specialization that kept going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper to the point where you have somebody who is the world's expert on the, neu expert on the neuron and just knows about it and knows exactly about its function and all the way that it plays and its intersections there, but doesn't necessarily see the whole unit that it's a system of. And I think that's in many ways where the patient paradox comes from. And on top of that, uh, something that I've experienced more and more with the people that I can that I explore or people that I try to learn from is there's a tremendous amount of people out here who have great knowledge, but it's not actually in them. It's not embodied in them. So they can. I did a workshop this year with a researcher who's written a great book and has done immense work in the space of trauma. And he can tell you all about the research of things of how yoga helps trauma and he's an incredible person, so I will not knock any of his work. I mean, I, I think that he's done amazing work, Bessel van der Kolk. But it's interesting that as the researcher of it, it's not that he's practiced it. He's looked at the literature. He's seen that it works, and he will tell you about it and tell you that it works. But he has not actually experienced it himself, so it's not embodied within him. So he has the knowledge and he has the capacity, and in that industry, he thrives. He thrives because of his cognitive and intelligence and the strength of his mind. But he's not also forced to balance that out with what's in his body and what's in his experience. And I think that that's creating more and more of the patient paradox because in that workshop, there was many doctors, many physicians, many people in the health sector who were looking for other ways to treat people because they only approached it from a very cognitive mental perspective. And they were seeing that it was the body, it was the emotions, it was the traumas, it was the past experiences of people, which were very important. So... I think what we're longing for and looking for is a more unified approach to life. But unfortunately, things are getting more and more fragmented and siloed. So I think that's where that paradox comes from, that you can have people with great knowledge, but they can explain things to you. But have they actually experienced it or do they see it from a whole perspective? And that's at the heart of the work that we're trying to do, that we came to recognize that we need to develop the whole human. And, and yeah, we're trying to see how that works with people. And it seems to be going quite well. Brilliant. Um, I think we're, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much. I remember we met you at my brother's birthday party last year, a couple of years ago. And I, after speaking, he's like, well, that guy, I, li I like the way he thinks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's a deep thinker. I'd love <laughs> to speak with him again. Um, and it's great that we've been able to have you on the podcast. Can, so I, thank you for coming. Uh, can I just say for that birthday yeah, as well, yeah. there was something, I think you said it. It was one of the most lovely birthdays where 
it was his 30th. Yeah. And everybody got up or a lot of people got up and said really nice things about him and, and what the impact that he made in their life. And I think I think it was you that said for most people that wouldn't happen until their funeral. Yeah. You know, that people would actually make that comment. And it was a lovely evening where, so nice. you know, to see Emmett showered in those messages of how he's impacted people's lives. And yeah, he was actually alive to hear it and to receive it. Yeah, it was it was powerful. Like, I think more people, it's something that should be applied at more, more yeah. parties. Yeah, actually, people telling each other how they feel and how they've made an impact before you. Yeah, they're in the ground. <laughs> so thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks Patrick. Thank you, Amy.